we're going to wrap up the series this morning in the book of Malachi. So we seven weeks, we got through it. It's awesome. It's a great book. It's the last book of the Old Testament, in case you've forgotten that. And we're going to actually connect that very directly this morning. It's the last book in the Old Testament in the Christian canon of Scripture. Actually, in the Jewish Scriptures, it's not the last book, but that's how it's ordered for us since 2,000 years, uh, almost. 1,600 years it's been ordered that way. So we're going to talk about it. I want to remind you again, though, as we wrap up, I've said it every week, and I'll say it again today, that Malachi is a hard word. And so there's something about the Scripture that we want to come to the Scripture and leave and be like, that is no big deal. But this is not that text. I'm not sure there are those texts, honestly, if we look at them. Malachi is definitely not it. It's a hard word that was sent by God through a messenger, Malachi, uh, to his people, to God's people. And so uh, it is a, a, a great uh, gift to us, and we have been blessed as we studied it together uh, for that way. So this last week, and man, this is like almost right out of the headlines, right? But there's an, uh, an accusation. So we're going to talk as we open, after we pray, about the accusations that Israel, that God's people were making against God himself, right? That he, they were like laying things on the carpet. They were like, they weren't murmuring anymore. They were just saying what they didn't agree with with God, and uh, that's all listed out in Malachi. But there's one in there that we're going to cover that is kind of like right out of the headlines. And, and here's how it works. It's like God is not just. You know, Chris just shared that example up here of how God is love, but God is righteous, right? But he's just in his workings. He, he's just in what he does. And one of the things as a culture we believe is that God isn't just, that God isn't fair, that things aren't working out the way that, that they should. And there's a presumption that I want us to see in this, God's injustice, when, whenever we act like things aren't right the way they are, is that we are superseding ourselves and judging God, right? Like, so here's God, he does everything perfectly right. And here's us just, you know, sinning and screwing things up. And then all of a sudden we go, this ain't right. And then we want to elevate ourselves and say God is unjust, that he's not just in what he does. How does this work itself out in our lives? Because, and, and this is a sin of our time, but it's not a new sin. That's the one thing that we can think is like, oh, it's different. It's not different than it's always been. What we're living through right now, we've always lived through as humanity because we are sinful beings. And this is what we fund, this is the fundamental sin that we believe. If we were in charge, it would all be right. You talk to anybody about anything, I don't care what their opinions are, what their views are, if they were in charge, it would be right. <laughs> And, and, and if 99% and if of things were agreed with what they thought, but there was like 1% that didn't, if that was fixed, they'd be even righter. I mean, that's the thing. That's where we live our lives, right? And what is that? Fundamentally, we believe that if, if, if we were in charge, then it would be okay. But God's in charge, and it's not okay. And in Israel, God's own people are rebuking him with these very similar claims. God is loving, but God is just. As a matter of fact, if I could make a, a, a statement, God is love, but God is just. And those are exactly the same things. We act like love and justice aren't linked. They are completely linked perfectly in God himself. His justice is true justice. His righteousness is true righteousness. And ultimately what this discloses when we say it's not right is that we don't trust God. As a matter of fact, and I just want to speak this straight out, if we want to take the reins and met out some justice of our own to make things right, we don't trust God to do what he says only he can do, which is to bring justice and righteousness to the world. We're like, scoot over, God, I got this. Scoot over, Jesus. Let me, let me, let me met out some justice here. The scriptures say all kinds of things, including that that will not satisfy. As a matter of fact, that's sinful. So 
We see it. We know it. But we're not called to take it. That's what, so today, the whole book's kind of been building. And we've had, matter of fact, almost like last week, might, might have been this high watermark. I'm going to send a, a, a savior, basically, to, to make this all right. But today, we're going to kind of get into that great and terrible day of God's just justice, his justice. I'm going to read it for you now, and then we're going to pray and get into the word this morning. It's one chapter. It's two paragraphs. Maybe mine has three. It's six verses. Hear the word this morning. Malachi 4, chapter, chapter 4, verse 1 through 6. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Then you will trample down the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty." Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. Look, I will send you a prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of his fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse." Pray with me if you would. Uh, Father God, we have um, come to this morning to celebrate you in song and in fellowship. We've come to celebrate you in the opportunity we have to send and to be part. We've come and we've heard your teaching about children. And now, Lord, we come into your word to hear your instruction, the hard word from Malachi as we wrap this up. I pray, Lord, this morning that we would have all of us have eyes to see and ears to hear, minds open to your truth, and that we'd be willing to take that grand and dangerous adventure of following you. Because no matter what's happening in this life, the, your truth behind it is far larger and more um, magnificent than what we face today. And so, Lord, if we kind of come into your word, I pray that you would be our teacher. We pray that your Holy Spirit would enlighten us to the truth your scripture has for us and that we could apply it to our lives through your power. Lord, I love what was uh, shared this morning. We come from the cross to your text. And so, Lord, help us to kind of equip ourselves rightly with your gospel that we can go out into the world uh, as, as your people proclaiming your good news. May you do that work. May you work with us this morning here. And, and I'm going to pray, Lord, that these, any distractions that are kind of in our lives or on our minds, you would set them aside that we could be attentive to you for this time. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have Malachi at the end here talking about wrapping this up in this great and terrible day, right? So all this has kind of been leading up to this moment. But I, I mentioned to you that, the, that Israel is making accusations against God. And I want to kind of enumerate them real quick so we kind of see what, the, he, what they were saying about God, right? And, or, and, one, and this was God's message to them. But he's like, this is what I'm, you've been saying. And they're like, how have you been saying that? And he's like, here's how. And he gives them examples. And you've been thinking this. How? I'm thinking that. And this is how. Here they go. There's seven of them, actually, that I pulled out of the... Um, uh, of the text. The first is that God is unloving, that he is not loving his people. That, that, and I'm, I, it's funny that that was the first accusation because you can think of something that's no more um, insidious or wicked than to say to the God that made you, the God that gave you life, the God that sustains you every day, that you don't love me, right? That's quite an accusation to make flippantly. 
that God is unloving. It was the first thing that Israel was believing in their hearts about God that was not true. The second thing is that God's not worthy. It's, it's through the contemptible sacrifices that, that you didn't have to, he wasn't uh, uh, different or he, he wasn't um, worthy of worship. The, the third is that God is unholy. And, and that's more like he's not set aside, you know, that there was this over-familiarity for Israel. That it's just like, okay, we're doing these things, we got this stuff, and they, and, and they didn't respect God's holiness, his otherness, rightly placing themselves under it. The, the fourth, I think, one, two, three, yeah, fourth was God is being unfaithful to his people, that, that he's not been faithful to them. And he actually makes a great proclamation about his desire for faithfulness, and his manifestation of faithfulness to his people. The fifth is that God is unjust. Talked about that a little bit as I opened today, right? But that he's not fair, right? Unjust. The sixth is that he's far off. He's not near. He's abandoned us and left us here. He's somewhere else. And you recall that God challenges Israel, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. And then just as we wrapped up last week was the seventh and final accusation before the fourth chapter. So you have to understand that all seven of these were laid out in the first um, th three chapters of the book. And now this fourth chapter, after the, the promise which we're going to get into, was a, this manifestation that following God is unrewarding. That all the things that we've been doing, our whole lives we spent following you, has meant nothing. There's a great accusation. There's no reward for us. There's been no inheritance. There's been no blessing for us for all of our sacrifice. What good has it done? They accused him because following you is not a rewarding life. These seven things are laid out in this didactic dialectic in the text as a conversation that God knows. Now, here's the funny thing I want you to see because you might read it and go, well, they never said that stuff, right? God accused them of it, but it, it, was, it was in Israel. It was in their behavior. It was in their life, the way it manifested, and he, he knew it. Why? Because he knows them, and he's like, here, and, and have you ever gotten convicted about something in your life? But sometimes one of the first reactions is like, what? That's not, that's not me. And then you're like, oh, it is me. It's, it's in there. And that's kind of how this works, that God knows his people, loves his people, and he's going to be honest with his people, even whenever that might be a painful experience. These are seven bold accusations. Now let's pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 4. I want to start with the first few words here. Surely... The day is coming. Assuredly, the day is coming. I want to back up a little bit. What's the day? It says in verse 17 of chapter 3, They will be mine, says the Lord Almighty, in the day when I make up my treasure possession. I will spare them, just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And then here's the second part. And you will again see the distinction between the righteousness and, or the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. So he's like, there's coming a day whenever I will act. Surely the day is coming when I will act, he tells Israel. And then there's a day coming when Israel will once again see the distinction between righteousness and wickedness. The day is coming. And, and, and that kind of sets up this whole four, fourth chapter then. He's going to say, there's a day coming, he calls it the great and terrible day, whenever there will be a distinction made. It's kind of funny and we're going to talk about this a little bit about the idea of lament, but there's this kind of this, this righteous desire to see justice. That's a, good, that's a good thing that we have been given, 
that that's not right, that's not fair, that sense of it. But where we screw that up is we think, and I can make it right, and we cannot. I can make it fair, and you cannot. If anyone's been parents of more than one kid, you have to realize you can't make it fair. It's not possible to make it fair. But God, God is coming. God is going to make it right. So he says the day is coming. Surely the day is coming. Now let's read on. Uh, And here's how the day, it will burn like a furnace. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day is coming and the day that is coming will set them on fire. So here's a really hard word, that there's a day coming where the evildoer and the arrogant will be stubble. And you, and you might go, yeah, I can't wait for that day, except we might be arrogant. <laughs> wait, we might be wicked. Like, JC hit this a few weeks ago, and I loved it so much. He said, we always pray for grace for others. We always pray for grace for ourselves, but we don't want grace for others. Wait a minute. We always pray for grace for us, but we don't want grace for our enemies. That's a crazy thing, isn't it? Get him, God. Get him. And then God turns around and he's like, look out, man. Because who is righteous? Who is good? He says, there's coming a day when you will see the distinction made. It's a great and terrible day. And every arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. I wanted to dig just for a split second into this idea of arrogance. It's those who are presumptuous or proud. I've been praying lately about pride, man. I've, I've been just thinking this through. And it's like pride is one of those things. It's just a monumental problem in our lives. We just get so full of ourselves. You know, what's the opposite of pride is humility, right? And we just spend all this time thinking how great we are and how terrible everyone else is. And you might go, well, Bill, that's only you. Maybe. <laughs> but right? We, we, when we have a tendency to judge or to look down or to condescend on people, it's a sign of pride in our lives, not humility. Oh, oh Lord, by, by your grace, I'd be way worse than I am. The arrogant and every evildoer, and that's those who would perform wickedness, Right? Now, here's the thing. It says, will become like stubble. Stubble was chaff. It was the leftover remnants after the harvest, and it was thrown into a fire. If you think about stubble, it's like the kindling when you want to start a fire. It's a running joke at our house, by the way. We have a fire pit in the backyard, and, like, there's a running joke about who can start fires and who can't. But the key is always the chaff. It's like you've got to get things going. It's the stubble, a little bit. And uh, you, you, get the, you get the fire going with a little bit, and then the fire turns into an inferno, and it burns uh, everything. It burns uh, all night. Um, That day will set, now here's what it says though, the day will set them on fire. Who? The arrogant and the evildoer will set them on fire. And I thought, what does that mean? Like, that's a pretty crazy thing. It's like, is it, is it like they're going to burn, you know, like burn? Like, what does that look like? The the, the proud, the arrogant are going to burn? And uh, then I thought of something, speaking of my campfire in the backyard. Maybe this will help make a little bit of illustration. So I, uh, I brought in this, uh, this little kit that we keep uh, next to our back door. I thought we might have, we had a couple of the kiddos here, but uh, so this is our s'mores kit. And in our little kit we keep right by the back door, we have uh, chocolate. It's fantastic. We have probably some stale graham crackers. This campfire, whatever. And we have some, mar- but this is the one that stood out to me, it is the marshmallows. Because there's this thing, uh, you guys can all do this, like if you've roasted marshmallows before, like 
I'm impatient, so I just put it in the fire and let it catch fire. Anybody did that? And just let it burn and pull off the, that's, what, that's right. Yeah, me too, right? But, but Chris, uh, she loves a perfectly toasted marshmallow. And she loves to hold it over the fire for hours and hours as it slowly turns to goo on the stick. Right? That's how she operates. Oh, as a matter of fact, I almost didn't bring this, but I thought, ah, safety, you know, it'll be okay. We're, we're all uh, mostly adults here. Um, so you put it on there, and you extend it, the, and then you put that, and then and you put it. Now, here's the funny thing, though, right? There, so I stick it right in the flame. Woof, light it on fire. But she likes to hold it there and let it toast. And there's a toasting speed issue. But if you've ever done it, and I would encourage you, maybe next time you're having a campfire to think about it, you can stick it down there by the coals. If you've got a fire that's really going good, you stick the marshmallow right down there by the coals. You don't touch the fire. What happens? It just bursts in the flames. And I've been in some campfires, like, I didn't even touch the fire. What did, why did it catch on fire? And it's like, because it's so hot in there. It's so hot in there. And, and now this is maybe a funny illustration to make about this, but that's what it says the day will be like for the wicked, for the arrogant. You, you, what's the word say? It's a furnace. It's this inferno. It's not, like, it's not like God is lighting people. It's like there's so much pressure, so much righteousness, so much holiness that they just spontaneously combust in it. That's a crazy thing to think about, right? But that, that's what it, it's, it's like. It's going, it will set them, the, the day of judgment will set them on fire. Think about some of the most precious um, uh, items that we have that we uh, hold high as men. It's like diamonds. They're, they're formed in a kind of a, a high-pressure environment. But here you have this parts of humanity that cannot stand on the day of God's righteousness. They will just burst into flames. It's, it's a pretty sobering uh, look at the text. But that's kind of what I was thinking about, was like, well, man, that's what it's like. It's like you get down in there, and you get so close to the flame, and, and then, and then you just, you're in the middle of it, in the middle of what God is doing. And on the day, they won't stand. Then he goes on. So that day will set them on fire. They're like stubble. They're going to burn, like, but the, 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 there's, there's stubble. By the way, it says, says the Lord, here it is again, church, almighty of hosts. I've been saying it the whole series, but that means the God of the armies, the God of power, the God of ability, not the God of, of weakness and uh, slumber. Then he, then he goes on to say this, though. And man, this is a wild thing. Not a root or branch will be left to them. Not a root or branch will be left to them. And I'm like, what? And I don't know if you know, but like, we have a bunch of trees on our property, and if you ever see a tree, and I'm just figuring this out, right? But if you ever see a tree, they say, I've heard arborists would say, that whatever you see above ground, you have almost as much below ground as above ground. Now, I'm sure it varies by species. Some of you guys probably know better than me. You're like, yeah, some of them have small root balls. But a lot of them, I was out mowing my backyard. In the middle of my yard, there's a root that I don't know what tree comes from. It is not near any tree. And I'm like, what tree? would Now, I could probably look up and see where the top of that tree is at and go, it's that one way over there. But there's as much happening below the surface as above the surface, right? And God says that in his great and terrible day, when you see the distinction between righteousness and wickedness, that not only will the tree be gone, but the root will be gone. All of it will be gone. And I was like, wow, that's, that's crazy. Because see, most of us, and I'm, I'm glad we did well with the illustration with the uh, marshmallows because I brought something else. Uh, most of us believe that if you're going to take a tree out, you just bring your saw right? And, and you just get your saw out, and, and then you cut the tree down. Wow! By the way, that's how you do that. That's the actual 
certified method, and, and for the young folks here. And then, what are you left with? A stump? Not if you do it like I do it. I stick the saw down in the dirt, right, Sean? I stick it right in there and just... Then what are you left with? The root? Stump, too, because you can't get that low, right? No, the, the blade gets dull. So I was watching YouTube videos because I have a stump in my yard. How do you get rid of the stump? And some guy goes, you put some chemical in it and you set it on fire. You set it on fire and you can burn that stump out. I'm like, I'm doing this. I'm going to burn, I'm going to put this thing on fire. And then before I, thankfully, I watched the whole video, he's like, be careful. Because when that fire gets underground, it'll come up way off of where you're at and you might burn something down. Because it'll just burn. If you get it hot enough, that fire will go all the way through there and burn that root out. But you can burn your shed. You can burn your house down. You can burn all kinds of things down trying to get rid of a stump that honestly is only bothering us because it's like that far above the soil level right there in that spot. I didn't do it. I didn't burn the stump out. I'm waiting for it to rot, (laughs) which is a longer process, it seems. But this is what God says, that not only is he going to remove the tree, you know, we have those analogies in Scripture. Not only are we going to cut down the tree, not only are we going to be cut off and cast into the fire, we have that in the New Testament, right? But that in the day of his righteousness, of his wrath, of his holiness, not only will the branches be gone, not only will the stump be gone, but the roots are going to be gone. It will all be burned up on that day. See, he's not just like, he's not just trying to take out a little bit of it. He's going he's to remove all of it. There will be no wickedness. Now, here's the thing. There'll be no pride. Are, are we making ourselves ready for that day? That there will be no pride left in God's presence. I have a question. How would you separate the righteous from the wicked right now if you were asked to do it? How would you divide the world between the righteous and the wicked? Or... Um, are you ready to see God do it? I mentioned earlier, I was going to mention this to you. So this whole thing we've gone through as a culture, one of my favorite things I've seen so far is the biblical idea of lament. And I'm like, what? And I was reading about lament. And, you know, the Psalms are full of lament. Um, King David, and I've been studying him lately too, King David would be praying, and, and he'd be crying, how long, O Lord, must I face my enemies? Would you deliver me from my hand? Would you strike them from the earth? And he actively prayed for God's righteousness. He actively prayed for God's wrath and distinction. And I wonder, would we be so bold as David? Would we, would we dare to ask for his righteousness to be known? Or are we ready for a distinction to be made between the righteous and the unrighteous, between the proud and the humble, between the wicked and the good? So that's just two verses, right? But then listen to what happens next. Verse, that's one verse, but here's verse two. But for you, what's the word say? Who revere my name. Do you remember the accusation that God's not holy, he's not righteous, he's not worthy? But for you who revere my name, here come some promises. The son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. So in the middle of all this kind of, uh, you know, danger, the fire, the, the, um, the, the uh, removal of the root and the stump, God's like this. He's like, and in the middle of all that, for those who are righteous, I'm going to bring healing. I'm going to bring the salve. I I think sometimes we are so ready to say like, yes, let's see it, let's see it, that we don't realize how painful it's going to be. And as a matter of fact, maybe right now we're going to experience a bit of the pains of what it might be to live in a, in a, a, a wicked, a lawless 
ruthless life, but it's not new. And he's like, I'm going to come in. I'm going to be the healer of my people. I'm going to bind them up. I'm going to attend to them. Look at what the word says. You who revere my name, the son of righteousness, will rise with healing in its wings. Now, I first read that, I'm like, oh, they had a typo. It's son, S-U-N. But that's exactly what it reads. Matter of fact, in another translation, it says, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. I don't know if anybody right now is enjoying the summer and the sun. Just saying, oh, yeah, right? I got a dog that's like solar powered. He just lays in front of the window and just sprawls out like, ah, so good. Like you just see if he could crawl into the sun, he would. That's what he says for my people, something like that. You're going to be blessed. You're gonna, I'm, I'm going to shine on you. You're going to be whole and soothed, and you're going to have peace. You're going to be healed in this time, in the time of my judgment. All the things, all the sores will be burned away. He goes on to say this, and you will go out and leap like calves from the stall, right? Um, or you will frolic, another translation says, you will frolic like well-fed calves released from the stall. You're going to be like, yes, this is awesome. I don't know if you've ever seen a calf frolic. I haven't. I've seen, but I've seen some, like, Bronco's buck. <laughs> That's kind of what I think of. But it's just more awkward because it's a calf. It's a little, a little cow. And it's just like, you know, kicking around like, woo, this is awesome. That's how you do that. Have you ever seen anyone frolic? I always, I always think of frolicking being like this. I'm going to get some speed up. Frolicking like this. But that's not. That's skipping. Not the same thing. Frolicking is more awkward. It's like, wah, yeah, woo, yeah, frolicking. How do you frolic? You're laughing at me. When was the last time you frolicked? Cubs fans? Cardinal fans? Because you know where I see frolicking? When your team hits the home run. What is it? How many people hold those stadiums? 10,000 people? Yeah! Yeah! I love race cars, and I love people drag racing. They drag race. Wah! And the winning team, yeah, yeah. I'm like, you're not even in the car. You don't even own the car. You frolic. There's something interesting about how humanity, not the United States, not Cubs fans, Cards fans, but people celebrate victory. Wow! You ever watch the Middle East? Yeah! We just had the 4th of July yesterday. Right? I didn't hear any announcements this year, but they were like, please don't shoot guns into the air. <laughs> but that's the thing, right? Woo! Pow, 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 pow. Jumping around, high-fiving your friends. Yeah! And that's just a remembrance of victory. I wonder, church, listen, the promise is this. On the day that the righteousness comes, on the day that God's judgment passes, you will frolic like well-fed calves. <laughs> you will have the victory of victories. I kind of want to redeem a little bit of that celebration of the Cards-Cubs games, right? That, that That's going to be nothing compared to the freedom of God's people, the righteous coming, the celebration that happens. I can't, I can't get over that, that we will frolic. We will frolic. 
like calves released from the stall. And by the way, it could mean fed in the stall, but imagine you're sitting in that stall and you've been eating and you've been waiting, and then finally the door is open, and you're like, yeah. And people might laugh, but wow, what a day of victory for the weak calf, for the small calf, when his master sets him free. Now it gets kind of dark, right? Verse 3, then you will trample down the wicked. I'm like, whoa, whoa, hold up, what? They will be like ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things. I'm like, that's kind of dark. As a matter of fact, you think that's dark? There's darker stuff than that in the Bible about the day of judgment. And I'm like, ah, oh, I don't know. That sounds, that's, that's, that's pretty harsh. And then I'm struck by this. You're going to be frolicking. And they're ashes. I think sometimes that's even hard for us to imagine, right? Because we sometimes think we are more graceful than God. Like, how is that fair? How is that right? What, what strikes me about it is not just ashes on your feet, not ashes on your legs, ashes on the soles of your feet. Like, it, there's going to be so little left, you're almost unaware. Like, do you, do you even realize when you walk across ashes? Do you feel it? That's the way the day is going to be, the day we're frolicking, that God has set us free, the day that the wickedness is over, the day that righteousness comes. Look at what it says at the end. When I do these things. When I do these things, says Lord Almighty. He started by saying, I'm going to do a great and powerful thing. And he says, and when I do these things, that's how it's going to be. It's going to be the greatest victory, the greatest celebration, the greatest party. So verse 4, remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all of Israel. So he's like, remember my holiness, remember my requirements. The, the statutes and the law, or the, um, the judgments and the statutes, it was like the things that he said was good and bad, and the way that he said your life will go, whether or not you obey them, should be remembered by God's people. That nothing has changed, that his commands are true, that we will know that. Verse 5, see, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. See, so here again, he's saying the, great, the day will be great and dreadful. And that dreadful means fearful. It's going to be a terrifying day. But he says, before that happens, I'm going to send my prophet Elijah to you. And, and look at verse 6. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Um, and the newer translation actually says, he will turn the hearts of parents to their children and children to their parents. In older translations, it says, he will turn the hearts of fathers to their sons and sons to their fathers. And there's this idea I talked to you a minute ago about there's going to be healing in that day, right? When God, when, when God keeps his promise. But it's this idea that the healing is going to be like a generational healing. Like there's going to be like healing between the generations, Again, we think all this is new. It's not new. Generational fighting has been happening for all the generations. Generational disagreement, you know. Um, and, and he's like, I'm going to come in the middle of all that, and I'm going to bring healing, and, and I'm going to bring a, a deference of fathers to sons or parents to children and children to parents or sons to fathers on that great and terrible day. I will do that. Elijah will turn their hearts, the word says, toward one another. And so that's kind of the promise we have. I wonder, do you need a victory in your life? Like right now, like do you, do you need a victory? Do you need God to do something that only God can do? 
And then, and then are you eager to celebrate if he does it? Are you eager to, to, to just unabashedly celebrate what he's done? He said, I'm going to send a prophet, and he's going to turn the hearts of their children to their parents and parents to their children. And then this is the last part, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Isn't it interesting that it ends with an or else? This is going to happen or else. Remember the law or else. Watch and listen or else. Because it's a great and terrible day, terrible day coming. Um, the uh, funny, interesting thing about uh, that curse at the end is it's actually uh, setting something aside for holiness. It's the holy offering. Uh, we know that from the Old Testament that you would burn sacrificial offerings to God for his glory. And uh, that's what he says, or else I'm going to burn it up, all of it. I'll burn it all up. And I promise you that we would, uh, so we have this kind of promise of remembering uh, 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 that the day is coming. But uh, I want you, if you have your Bibles open, flip over. So we're at the end of Malachi 4. Just flip to the right a few pages. And I'm going to ask you to turn to Matthew 17. So just to see how closely these two texts are connected. So you have 17 chapters of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, and, and then you have the last uh, chapter of the last book of the Old Testament. And I'm just going to read this. I'm not going to preach it today, but I want you to hear what the word says in Matthew 17. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. Jesus' face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Get up. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Do not tell anyone what you have seen here until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Why then do the teachers of the law say, that Elijah must first come. Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you this, Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but they have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And then verse 13, Then the disciples understood that Jesus was talking to them about John the Baptist that this great and terrible day was coming, be ushered in. Jesus is clearly instructing that Elijah has come, and the disciples understood, oh, that's who John the Baptist was. Remember what he said? Make straight the paths of the Lord. Repent. The kingdom of God is near, right? And, uh, and so you have here this very clear connection made between what we've been studying in Malachi and the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? That means that this is the season of God's favor. 
that you and I are living through the season of God's favor, his grace, and his love. What did uh, Malachi say? In that day when Elijah comes, he will turn the hearts of fathers to their sons and sons to their fathers. That this is a day of intergenerational care, concern. That this is the time that our hearts should be open to turning. That when you have that tendency to be prideful or humble, that you have the opportunity to choose humility in Christ. To say, I'm not going to grab that flag. I'm not going to try to ascend to that. When you have the chance to judge what you think is right, you're going to say, but I'm not the judge. God is the judge, and you're going to submit to his judgment. When you want justice done, you're going to trust in the justice of God himself. As a matter of fact, we can go through all seven of the accusations and say that this is a season they're fulfilling. This is a season that God's proving who he is in his great um, patience with his people. This is the season, church. You see, here's the truth, is that God has already judged all sin on the cross of Christ. Been judged already. You want to hold a grudge against somebody for the sin they've committed? Jesus already died that it be forgiven. I'm not saying it is forgiven because if they reject him, there's no forgiveness if they reject Christ. But if they accept Christ, all sin is forgiven. He's already paid the price. He's already made it right. Or else... A curse. Two final verses I want to share with you. Galatians 5.1. This is what uh, Paul writes. He says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So stand firm and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. It's like we're free in Christ. We should live in that freedom. And then, final verse, John 10.10. Jesus says this, I have come that you may have life. And have it to the fullest. A full, free life has been given to us in Jesus Christ. The fulfillment of, of the prophet uh, Malachi. I don't know if you know that. I don't know if you're in that. I don't know if you have that relationship. And I don't know if, you're want, if you want that kind of relationship that's going to set you free to live, to truly dare, to risk, to dream, to hope. Or maybe if you're applying that into your actual relationships, letting it sink in deep, right? But that's what we have in Jesus Christ, and this is the day. I want to offer two things in particular to you. First, that you need it for yourself. That you need to apply the grace of God to yourself. You need to speak the sovereignty of God over yourself. And the second is you need to do that same thing for anyone else in your life. <laughs> Just keep, hey, but God, that's one of my favorite words in the Bible, Corey Adolf said one time, right? But God, right? Just, this is the season of favor. This is the season of grace. This is a season to turn. This is a season of repentance. Don't act like you know what God's going to do. Pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you so much for your amazing grace for us, for the way that you've called us into your kingdom, unworthy as we are, and the way that you continue to kind of dust us off and pick us up and set us aright again on your path. Lord, I pray a prayer of thanks for your grace for all of us who are listening to you and engaged with you right now and praying to you right now that you have washed us with your blood and you have purified us from all unrighteousness, even though we like little kids keep getting our hands dirty and our feet dirty and making mistakes. 
Lord, I pray that we would know the totality of your grace for everyone, that we would um, rightly discern your truth, that we would speak truth in love, but we would never speak condemnation and judgment because those are not ours to have, that you judge rightly. And Lord, I'm going to pray a prayer of repentance for the times that we believed that if we had been in charge, if we were in charge, that we would do better than you, that we would just repent of all that garbage and say you are in charge and we are not and we trust you with the outcomes. We trust you with your righteousness. We trust you with judgment. And indeed, we submit ourselves and, and all those in our lives to you. Uh, would you glorify yourself, Father, and do your will, make your name great among the nations, and we will continue to, to learn and grow and celebrate the gift we've been given in Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.